0: Let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Romans chapter 14. We are continuing on in Romans chapter 14 now through working our way through this glorious book that the Lord has given to us and let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord as we hear now God's word given to us through our brother Paul. In Romans chapter 14, we are picking up in verse 5. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the living, of the dead, and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me every tongue shall confess to God. So then let each of us, uh, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit who has, has given us this word and who dwells now within us, confirming your word and applying your word to our hearts. And we pray, God, that by your Spirit, you would accomplish your good purposes in us, and also, Lord, by your Spirit, that any who don't know you, any who are far from you, Lord, that this morning you would call them to salvation. I pray for myself, for the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, that they would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, Amen. Men, you can be seated. Well, in Romans chapter 14, we started last week, Paul has been addressing matters of Christian liberty. These gray areas, these issues of individual conscience and opinion, things that that Scripture does not either command us to do or forbid us from doing. We need to remind ourselves that this section, Romans chapter 14, and these instructions about these matters, it flows out of Romans chapter 12, that our lives are to be a living sacrifice to God. Paul has been explaining to us how it is that we do that, how we live that way. That, That our lives, our very existence, is to be one of worship, marked by obedience and surrender, total submission to God. But we live those lives of, of, of worship to God together here in the local church with other Christians, with other believers. God making out of a diverse people one new people for the glory of God. And so the challenge is when he is doing that, when he has placed us in the church as a diverse people that he's made into one people, how do we live together with our differences, especially in matters of conviction things we feel strongly about in matters of conscience. And so to remind us quickly of what Paul is not talking about in this section, he is not talking about doctrinal differences. He is not talking about the interpretation of Scripture, clear commands and instruction and doctrines in Scripture. He is not talking about unbiblical behavior, which which transgresses the law of God and his commands. We are called to have discernment about those things. We are called to call one another to live in accord with God's revealed truth on those things, to call one another to a pure faith, to to call one another to good works. Doctrine matters to God. It's not a matter of indifference. Christian living, obedience to his commands, that matters to God. It is not a matter of indifference. They matter to God and they should matter to us. That's not what Paul's talking about. What Paul's talking about in this passage are all those other things, these gray areas, these things the Bible does not explicitly address. Things that, in and of themselves, are innocuous, they're neutral. They're neither good nor bad as they just exist on their own. And last week, Paul addressed the issue of food, those who eat meat and those who don't eat meat. This morning, he's got four more instructions for us in addition to what we saw last week that will help us to have unity and diversity in the body of Christ. These are the things we need to be reminding ourselves about regularly, particularly as we think about one another as we relate to one another in these matters of personal conviction, how is it we ought to think about each other? And that's what Paul is going to be addressing this morning. The first thing we are to remember is that the goal of living is to be pleasing to God. Look again at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another. Another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. When we see someone in the body of Christ who's different than us, they're different in in their convictions. They're different on things that we feel strongly about, though they're not explicitly commanded in Scripture. Our temptation is to, to elevate our own desires, our own opinions, our own convictions, to become a law that's binding for all other Christians. I see it this way, as we saw in our passage last week. If this thing would be a sin for me, then it is for you too. It is for everybody. That's the temptation. And So Paul wants us to remember the true believers, the genuine believers, and that's who Paul's addressing here in this passage, genuine believers living together in the church. He wants us to remember the believer's motivation. It's the same motivation that he, he tells us about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the Christian's motivation in everything that we do. And our motivation is critical. The reason behind any activity or any inactivity, anything we won't do, is critically important. And so Paul's talking here in verse 5 about special days. Days that are set apart. He says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. The the reference here is to Jewish festivals and feasts and holy days and Sabbaths. Some Jews and even some Gentile believers who had been converted and sort of came through the door of Judaism continued to observe these holy days and these feasts and these festivals and set them apart as holy to God. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with them continuing to observe these things, but none of these Old Testament feasts or special days are commanded for New Testament believers. God does not demand that we continue to observe these things And so there's nothing wrong with not doing it either. And so what we see, as Paul addresses now, first food and now special days is, this is not a matter of obedience or disobedience to God. It is truly what they call theologically matters of indifference. Personal conviction. There's no condemnation for observing the days, and there's no condemnation for not observing the days. Paul doesn't attack either side in this debate. Now, we will see, if if we read, if if you've been a part of this church for as long as I have, you remember when we went through the book of Galatians, and we go, Paul seemed to take a bit of a different tone on this matter of special days and and Jewish regulations in Galatians, or we also see that in Colossians chapter 2. In both of those letters, Paul is addressing a significant issue in, in the church. His group Judaizers Who said, if you want to really be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. And they had come in and they were binding the consciences of other Christians to these things. If you want to have right standing with God, it's not just faith in Christ that you need, it is observing these days, it is being circumcised, it is living as a Jew. That's what Paul's addressing in Galatians. He, he, may, he addresses it again in, in the book of Colossians. It's going on in this New Testament world, and it's a violation of the beautiful mystery of the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles, a diverse people, have been brought together and made one new man in Christ. And more than that, it's a violation of justification by faith alone. So it's a false gospel. To bind the conscience of another Christian and say, you have to do these things in addition to what God lays out in Scripture in order to be in right standing with God. That binding of another Christian's conscience is a false gospel. It's a perversion. And so we see how angry Paul is about that in the book of Galatians. Paul doesn't address it indifferently like he does here in Romans. Paul says, look, if you're teaching these things, you can go to hell. That's pretty serious talk from the apostle paul <laughs> but here in rome in, in in the church in rome this issue is not being treated the way it was being treated in galatia it's it's not being treated the same way they they weren't using these things to twist the doctrine of justification. They weren't twisting the gospel with these things. This diversity of expression that was being seen in the either participation in these special days or not participating in them, it was all coming from a place of genuine personal conviction, a desire to obey God, a desire to glorify God. And so Paul is okay with diversity on that. If that's your motivation in what you do and don't do, and you're not binding the conscience of another Christian, then God bless you. Wonderful. He never does that with false teaching. We never see the Apostle Paul tolerate false teaching. We just have a difference of opinion here about the deity of Christ. No, he never does that. He never tolerates sin. He never tolerates any of those things. But he does tolerate a diversity of expression and practice on neutral things. And in doing so, he's assuming the Christian's proper motivation, which is a desire to please God. So he says in the second half of verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's really a preview of what he's going to tell us later on in this chapter when we get down to to verse 22 and 23. He says, Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So when it comes to these matters of Christian liberty, of individual conscience, what Paul tells us is this, be convinced in your own mind. Whatever you do or whatever you don't do, be convinced in your own mind. Be convinced of what? Be convinced that what, whatever you're doing, whatever your approach is to this, it glorifies the Lord. This is how I can best honor the Lord in my life. The, the, the Christian question is not, can I do this or can't I do this? The cre- question is, how do I most glorify the Lord? And that pretty much clears up for us the things we can and can't do. How do I most glorify the Lord in my life? That is the Christian motivation. And Paul says, if you can't be convinced in your own mind that what I am doing or not doing is bringing glory to God, then it is sinful for you to either do or not do that thing. John MacArthur says this, in matters that are not specifically commanded or forbidden in scripture, it is always wrong to go against conscience. Because our conscience represents what we actually believe to be right. To go against our conscience, therefore, is to do that which we believe to be wrong. And although an act or a practice in itself may not be sinful, it is treated as sinful for those who are convinced in their own minds that it is wrong and produces guilt, end quote. That's exactly right. It, our conscience is what we actually believe. It's what we actually think is right and wrong. And so if I'm convinced something is wrong, but I go along with it to appease my Christian brother or sister, I am violating my own sense of right and wrong. I'm doing this thing that I believe displeases the Lord, and it is sinful. That's Paul's point here. And again, the temptation is to, to elevate our own views to the level of law and make them binding on we we're, we're a good distance removed from this first century tension that is all throughout the whole New Testament between Jews and Gentiles. And so it doesn't automatically make sense to us, but we do have something of an unperfect parallel in our approach to Christmas in the church of Jesus Christ. There, there are some Christians who believe we should treat December the 25th and everything to do with Christmas just like every other day. It's complete. they're like Charlie Brown. It's been completely commercialized. They're they're disgruntled with the whole affair. It is not pleasing to the Lord that we celebrate this. We saw this with with some of the reformers um, who who hated all that the Roman Catholic Church had brought into Christmas, and they said, we're just not going to celebrate it. We treat it like any other day. And they have this conviction that that is how we should do it. They go to Target, and they hear some, unregenerate sinner singing about Jesus and they're not pleased by that they're disgusted by that they look at the world celebration and it perturbs them they they look at at all that is wrapped up in christmas the gifts and the santa claus and by the way you just rearrange those letters what does it spell satan santa satan it's pretty clear to all of us what's going on here, right? They, they don't want anything to do with it. Their motivation, though, is I want to glorify the Lord, and so I'm not going to celebrate. And you know what? They're not sinning in that. It's kind of grinchy, but they're not sinning. But then you have other Christians who, who are convicted. We ought to do it up big. We ought to make a big deal out of this. This is the incarnation of Christ. We ought to celebrate. It is, it is He ruling the world with truth and grace and making the nations prove the glories of His righteousness. So I walk in Target and I hear Mariah Carey singing about Jesus and I'm like, it's happening. This wicked corporation is, is playing songs that glorify Jesus and, 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 and they want all of it. They want all the, they want the trees, they want the Santa cookies, they want the whole deal. And the reason is they think that it honors God to celebrate much and to make much of it. In both of these cases, you have people following their conscience out of a desire to please God, And, and what the Apostle Paul would say to both is, "Have at it." Have at it, as long as that's your motivation. Our temptation is whatever side of that debate we're on to look at the other side and be like, you people, are you kidding me? Oh, it would be wrong for me to do what you're doing, and so it must be wrong for you as well. That is the temptation we must constantly fight against in these matters of personal conviction. The remedy here is to remember this. The motivation for all believers should be to please the Lord. To please the Lord. So whether in our participating in anything or abstaining from anything in matters of Christian liberty and conscience, the question we should be asking is, are you seeking to please the Lord in all that you do or don't do? Christian, that's the question for you this morning. And those things that you feel so strongly about. Maybe you were here last week and you heard a lengthy list of things that we tend to fight over, and some of them got you riled up. In the things that you do or don't do, are you seeking to please the Lord? Is that your motivation? That's the central question. Paul says in verse 6 The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The decision is one of Godward devotion. And what's critical here is that God's approval is so much more important than man's approval is. It's so easy for us to live from man's approval, but it's God's approval that matters. It's God's approval that has weight far more than the approval of other Christians, even other Christians that we know and love. We should be seeking to live a life devoted to God. We should be seeking to live a life that is a living sacrifice to God. So whatever you do, why do you do it? To whom do you do it? For whom are you doing it? Whatever you don't do, why? For whom? These are the questions that that the Christian asks. and Notice two times he says here, gives thanks to God. This is such a helpful guideline for us in our lives. We sometimes get all up in our head about these matters and we don't ask the simple question Can I pray with thankfulness in my heart to the Lord while doing this thing? While participating in this thing? While eating this thing? While drinking this thing? While smoking this thing? Can I pray with thanksgiving to God for this thing? Is this something I can thank God for legitimately? Biblically, I can thank God for. I can't, you know, I I remember talking to a man once years and years ago in the church, and I said, could you, could you thank the Lord for this thing that you're doing while you're doing it? And it was a clearly sinful, like, lined out in Scripture thing, and he's like, I do every time. (laughs) I'm like, well, you likely don't know the Lord. We need to talk some (laughs) more. We can't, I'm saying, Biblically, can we thank the Lord for this thing? That clears up a lot of gray area in our own personal lives, doesn't it? It reveals our conscience, is what it does. Gratitude demonstrates a Godward disposition. Conversely, that which we do without gratitude is godless. It is godless to walk on this earth and breathe God's oxygen. Using the lungs that he created and that he sustains. Enjoying the gift of his creation and not give thanks to God in all things. That is godlessness. So exercising Christian freedoms without gratitude to God is godless. And what gratitude and contentment do for us is they protect us. They protect us from judging our brother or our sister, which is such a strong temptation in us. We need all the protection we can get. Gratitude will protect us. We cannot be thankful to the Lord and bitter about someone else at the same time. Those two things cannot share the same space. So we need to practice gratitude. We need to practice thankfulness. And just a side note for those that struggle with anxiety and depression like I do. Gratitude is a powerful weapon. To meditate upon, to verbalize in prayer to the Lord, that which you are grateful for, that which you are thankful for is is a light shining in the darkness. It drives out bitterness, it drives out anxiety, it drives out depression. It's not a magic button that we push, but it is a practice in the Christian life that bears much fruit. That was free. That was just free advice. Second, we're to remember that we belong to the Lord. Look at verse 7. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Says this word for. Again, that's always looking backwards and saying, here's why this is true. For none of us lives to himself. Not one genuine Christian lives for themselves. That's the assumption Paul's making as he says these words. We live for the Lord. We die for the Lord. We belong to him. This living sacrifice of the Christian life that Paul has called us to back in chapter 12 is to be so all-consuming that even the mundane actions of life are turned into worship. We're not to live compartmentalized lives in any way. We say, well, God gets my Sunday mornings usually. The rest of the week is sort of, I'm doing my thing. I'll obey God 90% of the time, but this little thing over here, this thing is mine. No, we're, we're not to compartmentalize our lives in any way. God is to have all of me. His pleasure is to be my aim in everything that I do. I am totally his. I am totally at his disposal. He is the master. I am the slave. That is what it means to be a Christian. And it's somewhat shocking the way that Paul says it here. These sort of assumption he makes about what Christians are like and what Christians are motivated by and what Christians are thinking. He just makes these statements of fact describing the Christian life. No one lives for themselves. No one dies for themselves. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul just makes these shocking, absolute statements. And we're thinking, if we think critically about what we're reading, I mean, I kind of do live for myself a lot. Like I yelled at my family last night. I ate the last cookie this morning, quickly, before the other person could get it. I didn't do either of those things. But, but we, we, we see in ourselves how we don't measure up to that standard. These statements are here to rebuke us. These statements are here to indict us. At whatever point, we're not devoting ourselves to Christ in that way. The entire orientation of the entirety of our lives is to be Godward. So much so that Paul just lays it out here for us and says, that's the Christian life. And just think about your week this past week. The holidays, when we're supposed to be so happy, but usually we're stressed out and kind of mean to the people we love the most. Think about your time. Think about your attitude. Think about your intentions. Think about your motivations. Think about your communication. Think about your relationships. Think about your actions. Were you, moment by moment, thinking... God, this next step belongs to you. God, this next breath comes from you and belongs to you. God, this conversation is yours. My life, Lord, is yours, a living sacrifice. I just offer all of it up in this moment in total obedience to you. That's a tall order, is it not? To live that way moment by moment. We can have our spiritual moments where we hear that and we're like, that's right. That's exactly right. That's the call. But then you think about your life. And you go, not only do I not live that way, I don't see how I could live that way. That is completely overwhelming. And yet it is the definition of the Christian life here in this text. It seems impossible. It seems overwhelming. And Paul just puts it out there. This is how Christians think. This is how Christians live. Each one of these statements is a spotlight shining into our hearts, exposing all the areas where we don't live this way, where we are not living like we belong to God. But believer, we're reminded again, you are not your own. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. God sets the timing and the circumstances of our living God sets the timing and the circumstances of our dying and everything in between belongs to him too. That brings us into the third thing that Paul wants us to remember. We have a blood-bought obligation. Verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do we belong to the Lord? Why do we live to the Lord and die to the Lord? Why does my life fully belong to him? Paul tells us why. Because he bought it. Through his living. Through his dying and rising again, he purchased me. So he says at the beginning of verse 9, to this end. That's a statement of purpose. This, Paul says, is why Christ died and lived Again, now it's not the only purpose, but certainly one of the purposes is what Paul tells us here that he would be the Lord of his people, that he'd be the master, that he'd be the ruler, that he'd be the sovereign king of his people. And he not only condescended to live among us, but he went to the cross. He gave his own blood to ransom a people for his own possession. Paul's talking to believers here and he says he did this for you so that he'd be the lord of you. Of course Jesus is the lord of all. That includes the wicked dead and the wicked living. But he is speaking here specifically about believers and it is such a beautiful and comforting statement. It is such a beautiful truth. Robert Halbane, the the great Scottish expositor of the late 18th and early 19th centuries said, to belong to the Lord as the object of his love is to be safe in his hands. What a beautiful truth that is. To belong to him, to be the object of his love is to be safe. He is Lord, Christian, over your circumstances in life. He is there with you in personal, loving, shepherding care as you walk this earth in life. And he is Lord over the circumstances and is there with you in personal, loving, shepherding care as you take your last breath in death. The Lord Jesus Christ died and lived again to be your Lord, your shepherd, your King. Jesus himself experienced death, and he conquered it. He defeated it. Paul says he died and lived again. And so he shepherds his people into, through, and beyond our physical death. Through all of it. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus rose from the dead to be Lord over all who are his. And your obligation, Christian Is to the Lord because you are blood bought. So, as we think about one another in the local church, how do we think about each other? How do we think about those who have differing opinions, differing convictions about us over neutral and non essential areas, but things that we feel very strongly about? How are we to think about one another? When sometimes we find each other's personality, if we're being honest, just a little bit irritating, a little bit frustrating. When when our cultures are just a little bit different. Well, what we need to remember in those moments is that we all belong to the Lord. That's how we ought to think of one another. Jesus purchased This brother, Jesus purchased this sister with his precious blood that he might be their Lord, that he might shepherd them lovingly and tenderly. And I ought to think about them as such. I ought to think about them that way. Finally, then number four, he says, we're to remember who the true judge is. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? You, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, as it is written. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Why do you judge, Paul says? Why, why do you despise? Why do you show contempt? Re- remember the temptations that we saw last week. The, the Christian who feels liberty in a certain area is tempted to show contempt For the weaker Christian who doesn't feel freedom to participate in that particular thing. And the Christian who feels conscience-bound to abstain from whatever that thing is, is tempted to judge the Christian who has more liberty because he assumes he's sinning in that liberty. And so in verse 4 that we saw last week, Paul asked, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? One servant doesn't judge another servant. That's the job of the master. He's not your servant. Paul takes up that same theme again here in verses 10 through 12. And his answer this time is a clear, direct statement of our individual accountability to the Lord. We will all give an account to him. On a future day of judgment. Verse 10 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It's a reminder to us, first of all, that we're not to be the judges of one another, especially in these matters of personal conviction. But secondly, here's the sobering reminder for us. We ourselves will be assessed by God. Not only this brother or this sister who does things differently than me, they'll be assessed by God one day. I'll leave it to him. No, I will be assessed by God as well. Each of us, individually, We'll give an accounting to him. Now this isn't the judgment of heaven or hell as we sang this morning in that great hymn of the church. Jesus paid it all. This, is, this isn't... Paul's talking to Christians here. The, the Greek word he uses here is bema. This, this judgment seat of God. We will stand before the bema of God. Theologians call this the bema seat judgment. But bema is just a raised platform with steps going up to it. It's a place for giving speeches. The reference here, it's a place where a judge would be seated and hear cases before an audience and adjudicate them, make judgments. And Paul says, each believer is going to stand before this judgment seat of Christ. You will give an account for yourself, not for your brother or your sister, for, for yourself before Christ. Christ. Verse 12, he says, so each one will give an account of himself to God. An account of what? Of all of it. An account of our time. An account of our gifts and our talents. An account of our opportunities and our relationships. An accounting of our words. An accounting of our thoughts. An accounting of our motivations, an accounting of the attitudes and the inclinations of the heart. That is a lot. Maybe I told you, think about your last week or your last couple weeks earlier. And maybe you quickly thought of some things where you're like, man, I'm not measuring up. Not all the time. As we examine ourselves in the light of what Paul is telling us here, brothers and sisters, Is there not more than enough to be concerned with in my own life, in my own heart, in my own motivations? How could I possibly even have the time or the energy to devote to judging someone else on a matter of personal conviction? I have got enough to deal with at home, in my own heart. For for us to judge or despise a brother over non-essential matters is premature. It's arrogant. It's outside of our authority. It dishonors Christ and it sets us who are equals above one another in judgment. When we're all just servants of Christ who will give an accounting to him. When we're all just called to serve one another in love and humility. And so we're to leave these things to the one true infallible judge who has perfect knowledge who has perfect judgment and who loves his servant. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10 says, we we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The same word, the Bema. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It's a popular thing and popular Christian theology, which is another way of saying unbiblical Christian theology to say that, and to assume that, there is no judgment whatsoever coming for Christians. But that is simply not the teaching of the New Testament. We will stand before this judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And we know as Christians, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 stands. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Hallelujah. This judgment that Paul's describing here and describing in his letter to the Corinthian church is talking about this Bema seat judgment. It is not a judgment of condemnation on individuals. It is a judgment on our actions, on our lives, on our thoughts, on on all of us, on what we did with the time God had given us and all that he had given us. It is a judgment seat of rewards. For good deeds, and it is a judgment seat of burning up of useless deeds. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that we're God's workmanship. Created to walk in the good works, he has prepared for us beforehand. And at the Bama seat, those good deeds will be rewarded. What a striking thing. It is God who has prepared them for us. It is God by his spirit who has worked them out in us. And it is us who will be rewarded by God for them. It is an astounding, astounding thing. In closing though, we need to look back at verse 11 because Paul uses a text from Isaiah and he draws in something much larger. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. This this text adds a layer of seriousness and sobriety on top of what Paul has already been saying that we should take very seriously. Isaiah chapter 45. Paul quotes here from from verse 23, the second half of verse 23. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. What what Paul does in Romans chapter 14 is to take this section of Isaiah 45, and he combines it with a short phrase, As I live, says the Lord. That's an oath that God uses throughout the Old Testament. It's it's a short form way of saying what the first half of Isaiah chapter 45 verse 23 says. Look back there. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, God's own name, God's own nature, God's own integrity is on the line in this. Paul just sums it up with as surely as I live, says the Lord. But back up a little more in chapter 45 of Isaiah and see some of the context that Paul draws from to draw this statement in. In this section of Isaiah, God is comparing himself to all the false gods that his people were tempted to serve. And he's telling Israel, There is no one like me. There is none like me. He says in verse 21 Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is no one beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. Here God is proclaiming His own universality. He is the only one. He is the only true. He is the only living God. There is no other. And He is the only Savior. And so He says here, to the ends of the earth... Turn to me and be saved. Come to me and be saved. It's a a command. Everyone is not only invited, they are obligated. Come to me and be saved. Turn to me. From whatever worthless, dead thing you were pursuing, turn to me and be saved. He says in verse 23, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now here in Isaiah 45, what Paul's quoting from, it's not the Bema seat of judgment that's in view. It's the great white throne of judgment when God will enact final judgment on all people, on the righteous and the unrighteous. God makes this solemn promise, that day is coming when everyone will bow the knee before him. Everyone will swear allegiance to Yahweh, the one true and living God. Some will do that joyfully, having done that in this life. They've surrendered to him by faith. They have benefited from his grace. And what a joy it will be on that day to bow before him and worship and proclaim, Yes, you are the Lord the true and living God, the Savior of my soul, the one who has shepherded me through this life and now shepherded me into your presence forevermore. What a joy that will be for those who have done that in this life. But every mouth that has refused God in this life will be stopped on that day and will swear allegiance to him in eternity, not willingly, because they will be compelled to do so and it will be too late it will be too late every knee will bow every tongue will swear allegiance every single person, all of them will bow the knee and confess his sovereign rule he goes on in verse 24 only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength that's what every person will confess yes there is no other way Only in you, the true living God, only in you is righteousness to be found. Only in you is strength and life to be found. He goes on in verse 24, To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. Those who have not bowed the knee in this life, those who have not proclaimed that in this life, will be ashamed and will face condemnation. But listen to verse 25. In the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel be justified and shall glory. Oh, friends, that is amazing. That's us. That's us. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was judged in our place, we will not face this final judgment. Our, Our chaff will be burned away. Our worthless deeds burned away. Our good works rewarded that's what it will look like for us to stand before the throne of God Almighty. Paul describes this moment in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a joyous moment that will be. We're His. We're His. Our our accountability is to him. And everyone who rejects Christ will meet him one day. They they will be assessed by him, by this judge. There will be no Ephesians 2.10 category. There will be no, no Christ looking at them saying, I see the good works that I prepared for you beforehand that you walked in. No, there will be none of that. They won't be, as Paul says, saved yet as through fire. That's the warnings for Christians who've wasted their time. It's not a warning of eternal condemnation. It is a warning of, of regret. Not so for those who've denied him. No, they won't be saved yet as through fire. They will be consigned to fire. They will be Consigned by God to the eternal unending conscious torment and judgment that is due them. They will receive the paycheck for which they have labored their entire lives. That day is coming. Everyone will meet Christ. Think think about that. Christians, think about what that means for us. The the one who himself was judged for our sin. Not for his own sin. For For the sins of every single person who would ever believe. He was judged for them. He paid for them in his body on the cross. That very one who was judged for sin will one day be the final adjudicator of all deeds of every human who ever lived. For believers, praise God. Who, 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 what could be more comforting than to say, Jesus will give the final assessment of you on that day? I can think of no greater comfort, no greater hope, no greater surety and assurance. To stand before him and, and, the, and the chaff, the, those worthless things. Things that I have the good sense to be embarrassed about and things that I don't even know enough to be embarrassed about. All of it burned up. The good deeds that he prepared for me and that he worked through me rewarded by him as if I had done something. What a glorious moment. What a glorious Savior. Before the unbeliever, it is that infinite final paycheck. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ you're living a life of rebellion, living for yourself, with yourself as Lord like the wicked kings in Psalm 2 saying I will burst God's fetters, I will burst his chains, I will be my own king, I will be my own God there's a paycheck coming What you've earned in this lifetime of rebellion and sin will be paid out in full. But the voice of God rings out in his creation and all who can draw breath into their lungs and says, turn to me and be saved. Come to me and be saved. That's the offer. That's the call. Come and be a son. Come and be a daughter. Come and receive infinite reward earned by the righteousness of Christ in His sinless life. Come and receive full forgiveness and pardon and cleansing earned for you in the the substitutionary of death, death of Christ, pouring out His own blood on the cross. Come and receive the infinite reward of the perfect Son of God in eternity with Him. When you stand before him and he says to you who were once a rebel, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. That is God's call to each one of us this morning. Come again. Come again to him. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. Lord, your word challenges us. Your word convicts us. Your word calls us to to righteousness. Your word offers to us hope beyond all measure, hope beyond any human understanding or reckoning or conception. I pray, God, that for your people, you would cause us to live our lives as living sacrifices, wholly surrendered to you. It would cause us to love our brothers and sisters, to care for them well. or not to judge them, to be gracious with them. And even as we call one another to godly living and greater godliness and faithfulness and greater wisdom in the choices we make and the things we do and the things we don't do, even as we sharpen each other, as iron sharpens iron, I pray, God, that it would be marked with love and grace that truly we would be those who speak the truth and those who speak it in love. Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray, God, that now by your spirit, in your kindness, you would call them to yourself. You would do what only you can do, cause their heart to live, cause their blind eyes to see, cause them to come to you and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.